The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and this is a special bonus podcast from the Art Newspaper. Last year we talked to Alice Mann, a reader in modern and contemporary art history at Cambridge University, about two exhibitions she'd curated of two female surrealists, Dorothea Tanning at the Reina Sofia in Madrid and Leonor Fini at the Museum of Sex in New York. My conversation with Alice was edited down, as is usual on the Art Newspaper podcast, for time reasons. But now that the Dorothea Tanning exhibition has arrived at Tate Modern, we thought we'd include those edited questions in a special podcast dedicated purely to Tanning. I began by asking Alice how she saw women's role in the Surrealist movement. Well, Surrealism still tends to be viewed as a very um, a sort of short movement, one that dominated modern art in the interwar period, 1920s and 30s. And within that kind of canonical history, you find that women are effectively removed from the narrative. Often people seem to perceive surrealism as a story of a few white European males who dominated it, as I say, in the interwar period. But in fact, it's a movement which went on right up until the late 1960s and after. And when we broaden its boundaries, we find that the women are actually centre stage. Now, Dorothy is an American artist and she sees that exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Fantastic Art, Dada and Surrealism, and it profoundly affects her. So she's making art immediately with a knowledge of surrealist achievement. Exactly. She's someone who uh, grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, so, you know, mid-America. And uh, she moved to Chicago to study art. That only lasted um, a few weeks where she was totally despaired at what they expect her to do in the Art Institute. She moved to New York where she was jobbing uh, as everything from a waitress to actually um, a designer doing advertisements. But for sure she described seeing this big 36 exhibition as something that just rocked her over, I think is how she described it, and where it opened up a world of possibilities, endless possibilities. And the thing we also have to remember about that big show is that it was um, it was the show that also put Merit Oppenheim, um, another woman surrealist, on the map. And Barr didn't just exhibit her, he bought her art. And as we all know, the purchasing of artwork actually ensures a different legacy, which shouldn't be uh, underestimated. And her object, Breakfast in, Cur- in Fur, uh, was bought by him in 1936. He'd seen it in a surrealist exhibition in Paris. And he selects it for this huge show, buys it for the collection to great consternation. And I'm sure that when uh, a young woman artist like Dorothea Tanning saw not just an exciting movement, but examples of young women doing fantastic things, it, it certainly inspired her. How quickly did she assimilate what she'd seen in that exhibition into her own practice? Mm, this is um, a good uh, a good question in the sense that actually it wasn't as if she immediately turned into a surrealist overnight, uh, although the financial situation is something, again, that's worth keeping in mind in that she was working and working for department stores um, as a designer, so for Macy's, designing adverts for their gloves, their pearls, their perfumes in a surrealist style, which is why I've included them in the first room of the exhibition to show how this is where she sort of began turning to surrealism. But 1942 tends to be the year we uh, mark as when she confidently declared herself as a surrealist and turned to a surrealist style in a self-portrait called Birthday of 1942. 
um, which when Max Ernst saw in her apartment in New York, her small studio apartment on an easel, not yet finished, he um, immediately asked if he could include it on behalf of a committee advising Peggy Guggenheim in an exhibition of 31 women artists that was being shown in 1943. Again, big show of women artists in 43. And that's really what put her on the map in New York in 1942-3. Is it is it right that Max Ernst actually helped her title that work? Yes. So the it's a it's a nice story because she describes Max Ernst as her Christmas present when he comes one snowy December day to her apartment. And um, the other thing to note is she was married. He was married. Um, and he saw it and asked what the title was. And she said she hadn't yet titled it. And he suggested birthday. And of course, um, she was 32, um, but it really meant her birth as a surrealist. He also noted that she had an image of chess near her um, easel, asked if she played chess. And so the romance began because he invited himself back to play a game of chess. What is it about chess and surrealism and Dada? Well, I think I love the motif of chess. And in fact, in the exhibition, there's the second gallery space. I didn't want to do something sort of about sort of dissecting up a woman artist, who were her lovers, who were her friends. So I've used the motif of chess to show how they shared a sense um, of game, of play, of the ludic. But the other thing about chess is that it's a language which crosses boundaries and languages, national and international at a time of war. And um, I mean, Marcel Duchamp, obviously, as the great chess player representing France, no less, um, meant that he and the circle were all great um, fans of, of chess. But as I say, it literally did create a space which brought them together. And for a huge show in 1944, the Julian Levy Gallery, Duchamp, Max Ernst, um, Dorothea, they came together, Mural Streeter, to produce works on the theme of chess. And I think the idea of strategy and being used by an avant-garde, as I say, in a kind of irrational way, um, the idea of mastery and skills was something that they twisted so that it had a nice data surrealist subversive effect, but also at a time of war. What I find remarkable about Dorothea's work is how quickly she is she adopts a mature style. Like so from those paintings in nineteen forty two and forty three, it seems like her whole world is is fully accomplished and enriched. Is that your sense about her? Well I think there's um again it's worth thinking about whether we'd sort of almost say the same thing about a male because there's an audacity that we often associate with gender. And for her, she's somebody working in her 30s. She's been producing art for over 10 years. She's fabulously well read. Uh, and I think what's interesting is how she's part of this circle, this avant-garde circle in New York and then Arizona, who are all mm -hmm. talking about literature and ideas and art and battling against the move towards abstraction. Um, at the time, because this is the moment when we think New York stole modern art from Paris. Jackson Pollock is moving in and there's a new uh, informal abstract approach to surrealism. And certainly she was someone who produces a gorgeous, meticulous surrealist style. Um, you might you know, think of someone like Salvador Dali in the sense that it is very, um, uh, very detailed uh, oil paintings. Although I think the other thing is to keep in mind is that that style is coming from her role in advertising design, her illustrator role. Um, so there's an individuality there in terms of her particular style, the subject matter she turns to, the fact it's all very domestic, and at the same time, the fact that surrealism is holding its own ground desperately, stylistically, philosophically, and politically at this time when people think that with trauma, war, you can only do the abstract. 
Tell me about some of the motifs that develop in her work, because there's, for instance, there's the sunflower and the doors, which is mm. obviously the, the, mm. in the title of your exhibition. Yes, so the door is the motif. Uh, I mean, and the door, again, is quite a data surrealist uh, motif. The door, which is a jar. So one of the points I make is that it's not the open door in the sense of being able to see what's going to happen, nor the close, which would divide private from public. But it's the idea of a door being a jar, swinging slightly, the artist holding it on one side and perhaps the viewer on the other. Um, because, again, that gets into the idea of space and sexuality and the private and public and how these are being explored by an artist and by a collective movement. So in her work, what's interesting is we do have the motif of the child, the femme enfant, the little girl, which people might have seen before in Max Ernst, in Salvador Dali, uh, in other artists' work. But she tends to represent the sort of Victorian child, an Alice in Wonderland type child, um, enraged, wreaking havoc on the domestic space, not in a kind of passive dreamscape, or at least not in terms of how I see it or stage it. Um, but the child and the sexuality of the child, which of course they were interested in, uh, and which Freud writes beautifully about, is something that's being explored by this woman artist. But there are other motifs, and they tend to intertwine through, as I say, a notion of space. So you have the family. Uh, she's got images, you know, a work called Portrait, Family Portrait of the mid-1950s, where you have a gargantuan, rather absurd father figure. Uh, we have a, a whole room which has tables with these beautiful white tablecloth, which she writes about in her journals and her memoir as kind of the sign and symbol of family order. And of course, in her canvases, they become landscapes for the bizarre, for the surreal. So a still life, a domestic table, roses and their phantoms, as the name of the work is from the Tate collection, for example. Uh, we find objects uh, morphing into rather bestial, crazy uh, details uh, before our eyes, which is again where her great skill and subject matter come together. So you see metamorphosis almost happening, tricking the eye in the canvases. Uh, there's also the theme of ballet from the 1950s, of movement and touch and the body, um, and the architectural uncanny. So it's curious, in the mid-1960s, she turned to sculpture. And again, um, this is where she moved from dance and from painting and meticulous painting into a much more expressive style using fabrics, fabrics that she found had sewed on her Singer sewing machine, uh, and which began as a small domestic scale object, if you like, um, one, for example, called Pincushion to Service Fetish from 1965, which is in the Tate Modern Collection, um, and which within 10 years had grown into a huge pincushion in the late 1970s, which is in the Dallas Museum Collection, which we have as well on show, uh, and where you see a great confidence and audacity even, where this little domestic object, a, a pincushion, is now the size of a large sofa. It's black velvet and it's make it's imposing, it's monumental. And she's turned something banal, everyday, feminine, domestic into something that's positively um, staking its claim to be a great masterpiece. And then, of course, she goes, she takes it even further and makes it, it makes an installation at a room scale. Tell me about that work because it's an extraordinary thing. Yes, so this is Hotel du Pavot from De Sondeux, which was produced, uh, made by her between 1970 and 73 for um, her first retrospective exhibition uh, in Paris in 74. And she described it as perhaps her greatest surrealist masterpiece um, because it brought a lot of her ideas together in the third dimension. And it is a room, a three-sided space that the viewer enters um, where 
um, what is a hotel room, where you have figures, bodies, limbs emerging out of the walls and the wallpaper of the rooms. Um, again, that theme of metamorphosis literally being staged before the eye and sculptures and a, um, a fire piece and a chimney again bulging with animal or feminine limbs. Um, it's all handcrafted by her, detailed obsessively by her in terms of the wallpaper having to be dark and dingy and we had great fun installing this and staining it with tea, tea bags <laughs> to make sure it had that sort of um, uncanny edge, the light bulb which had to be sort of bald, naked, miserable looking uh, and the rug. And it's there very much, I mean, it's something that might strike people as rather cinematic in a Hollywoodian and Hitchcock sense. We wonder what's going on. There are clues. Again, that's a little bit of the chess player. So you have 202, the number on the door. It's a jar. So you see a door, but the door leads nowhere. It's a dysfunctional door. Um, and you're not sure what the narrative is. It transpires, however, that there is a story behind it. There's a popular song behind it, one about a, a Chicago gangster's mall who uh, committed suicide in a hotel room. So there's a lovely popular story behind it, as well as the fact, of course, that it takes on a much more surrealist edge about space. And again, this idea of opening a door to fantasy and trying to encourage spectators then and today to open up to a new experience and that being at the heart of what an artwork should be about. In between what might be called her sort of high surrealist phase in terms of these very detailed images that you're talking about and the soft sculptures, there's this intriguing body of work which develops around the 1950s where the figure is present but much more abstracted. And it seems to me that they, these, despite being more abstract, are also some of the most sort of highly sexual images in her canon. Would you describe what those images and what, what significance they had for her? Well, these are works which from the mid-1950s on, for about a decade, she produces and describes herself as prismatic. Um, so they're almost like a kind of conflation of cubism and surrealism because we have the planes moving in a chaotic swirl. Often you've got limbs intertwined. Um, I think they might be described as uh, more sexual in that they're more fleshy. There's The limbs or the genders are indiscernible. So it seems like little figures of boys or girls, dogs, certainly there's a, the motif of the dog comes out strongly, but in layers of images so that you sort of, um, they're very theatrical. Um, and it's where I think the influence of her work in ballet has uh, come out and she's liberated that m very precise, meticulous style she had in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and you have a kind of big expressive stroke coming out. You've also got an issue of scale, which is which in itself, you could argue, is very sexual. Um, she goes larger, bigger. She has more details. You have a big toe coming out in one part of a... Um, the tourists of Prague are painting and a dog seeming to, to nuzzle at the sex of a, a woman in another image. Um, and so there's lots of little details and it really depends whether you're standing up close on what you see and what you choose to focus on or far away, in which case you get a, a landscape of kind of formless limbs, which certainly has a great exuberance about it and which is perhaps uh, telling too because she's moved from the United States to France in the late 1950s and 60s. Um, and I think was really um, quite empowered by new directions for art in the 60s as she turned towards this expressive style. Ever since the 1980s and when Whitney Chadwick published her very important book about women artists and the surrealist movement, the women involved in surrealism have tended to be grouped together. But 
Dorothy was very resistant to be to being seen as a woman artist, didn't she? There's a quote by her which is quite telling. Yes, so I've included. Uh, I put that quote actually in the wall of the exhibition space at the Reina Sofia at the very end of it, where we've got works from the 80s and 90s, because I felt it was important to note her own idea of self-fashioning, what she wanted to be remembered for, but also to complicate how we uh, talk and curate shows about women artists. And she said, women artists, there is no such thing. Our person is just as much a contradiction in terms as man artist or elephant artist. Why? Well, because she said, you may be a woman and you may be an artist, but the one is a given and the other is you. And that idea that she didn't want the label of woman or people perceiving going a priori into an exhibition and looking for the gender tropes, looking for the gender argument, I think was part of why she didn't like the label woman artist. But also by the late 1980s, and she said this in 1989, um, she was nervous of being sort of sucked into a particular feminist narrative, a feminist movement of the 70s and 80s, and almost all the work she had done being um, neglected, um, are being misrepresented in other ways. And the thing about, you know, um, books, uh, huge exhibitions, these have been hugely important in terms of us documenting um, the narrative, the work, the lives, um, the ideas of a whole range of women artists of the avant-garde. But increasingly now we have to um, be not more discerning, but give them their voice and their space, give them huge monograph shows, which they merit, so that we can get a much more in-depth concept of what they're doing and how they contribute to bigger movements like surrealism um, and how that fed into feminism in the 70s and 80s and is is reoccurring in a lot of contemporary art today. So in complicating this group of women who came together under the um, auspice of surrealism, but kept saying, don't just call me a woman artist. It's because they said, you're not calling the guys men artists. Um, surrealism, how are you going to define it? So they kept asking for people to define what they meant, which keeps us on our toes and can only be a good thing. The male surrealists were obviously enormously influenced by Sigmund Freud's ideas, but how did the uh, women surrealists respond to him? Freud, they recognised opening the gates to sexuality and problematizing it. Um, but with Tanning, I would argue too that perhaps Freud's analysis of child sexuality is something she was more interested in as well. Because obviously, if you look towards the child and issues around taboo, uh, which are instilled in theory through the father figure for Freud, you know, he cites the mother having to go from with the child to uh, explain how it goes from the breast and the maternal to um, the father, the doctor and the priest, almost in that order, where gradually their body is controlled and their sexuality must conform. Um, and of course, that meant for a lot of avant-garde women who were leading the modern woman lifestyle had rejected often motherhood, uh, traditional marriage, traditional lifestyle. Um, they were interested in the idea that actually you could nurture a different life path and story. And Freud said that. I mean, he put the power in the hands of the family and civilization, but he that was his way of dealing with people's neuroses. For them, they wanted to use that knowledge, that scientific writing about sexuality as a way of um, doing something different and bringing sexuality onto the table, into the canvas. These were subjects that normally were behind closed doors and they made them um, uh, valid uh, subjects for art. Dorothea Tanning is at Tate Modern from the 27th of February until the 9th of June. 
If you'd like to hear Alice's thoughts on Leonor Feeney, you can find the original podcast titled Don't Call Me a Woman Artist wherever you usually get your podcasts. It was released on the 1st of November. And that's it for this special. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Tan Audio. And our usual weekly podcast, a Rembrandt special, is out soon. Do join us for that. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.